Uh, for now, uh, just would you just turn your eyes to the screen for one sec. I've got a 60-second clip that will help set a tone here. So that was downtown Bangkok. That's, in, that's down the road from Don Moang Airport. This was taken from the balcony of the hotel room we stayed at for that night before flying up to May site. It happened about oh, 6.30 in the morning, really popular time for a Western tourist. And it's like the noise, and it's like, and it, we, we're trying to ignore it, bury our head under the covers for a good 20 minutes because you can hear it right up the street. And finally, oh, it's right outside. Okay, let's get some footage. You'll notice elements of this. There was a parade. This is actually the main road of Don Moang. It's a procession with people playing music and being a bit loud and boisterous and a little bit of cheers. You can't get all the audio there, but I did zoom in. It's downtown. It's just, you got all the, just, it's just suburbia. And you've got those people at the front dancing and carrying on and making a big song and dance of the whole thing. And all that is in there is a bunch of people dancing and carrying on, musicians, people bearing gifts in the middle, and at the end of that procession, just two under the umbrellas, two Buddhist monks. And uh, these guys were being led down the busy street, stopping traffic towards a pretty large temple down the road. If you spend time around the neighborhood of Bangkok and around other places of, of Thailand, you'll quickly notice how prominent a role Buddhism plays in the nation. It's everywhere. If you're not aware, Thailand is home to the second largest Buddhist community in the world with some 90 million adherents there. The only place bigger is China. There are entire sections of supermarkets dedicated to trinkets of worship. So you can get your pre-packaged offerings down at the local supermarket to go take it down to the Buddhist temple. You'll actually see up there is a sign, ceremonial offerings. That is a section in the supermarket. You know, aisle number nine, ceremonial offerings, clean up. It's, it's, it's a section. It's a thing. When boarding internal flights, the monks get priority seating and they get special treatment in flight. The big temple near Don Muang Airport is adorned with symbols of the horoscope. You'll see animals there. These are all part of the, 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 um, the Asian horoscope. Each animal depicting a specific year. You've probably heard the year of the goat, the year of the rat, the year of the frog, the year of this. You know, that's, that's what they all are. There's 12 of them all around, around the whole temple uh, front steps there. Their place in the temple compound gives the impression that religion is to some extent intertwined with the idea of fate. Therefore, the acts of devotion are done in superstitious hope that the deities of Buddhism are able to hold fate itself at bay. There is clearly a sense of religious respect and tolerance in the neighborhood, though. Um, you know, Christians freely live without fear, at least in the places we were. There was Christian freedom throughout Thailand. 
Uh, Pastor Marguerite was talking to someone in the street. And in fa- a, a very friendly Buddhist man who emphatically says, ah, oh, no, Buddha and Jesus are really good friends. But ultimately, everything lives in the shadow of the Buddhist ideal over there. Other less prominent worldviews simply look for ways of coexisting with that which overshadows them. In many settings, even Christianity can get swept up in that. And although it's supposed to stand above everything, Jesus is the God above all gods. He is the God, right? The one true God. And, and, and yet, Jesus often gets added to the shelf where Buddha and other deities politely ask for residence as well. I'll let that simmer for one moment. We are going to journey through the book we know as Ephesians. This is a circular letter that is being written to this city as well as the villages and cities within a larger neighborhood. Ephesus at the time was the second largest population in the world. And if you took the city limits of Mount Gambia, all the bits that make up 5290, and for every person you meet, add another eight, you get an idea of the density of the region we're talking about. That's a rough guesstimate. At a guess, we might imagine the extended, the, the intended reach of the letter of Ephesus is something like, say, Port Mac to Narracourt, Cassadin across to Rome. Robe. Rome. That's a big reach. Robe. <laughs> Ephesus was a diverse and multicultural city. And this is reflected in all walks of life. Apparently, a lot of foreigners took up seats of influence and governance in that space. There was a university and a library, giving space for a community given to intellectual and philosophical pursuit. There were wealthy Romans alongside political and religious refugees. There were slaves, there were mystics. It was a major port city. It was a major center for trade. Uh, It was an attractive place to live for a very cosmopolitan crowd. It is said to be very progressive for its time. Women had equal rights to men. Ephesian history records great female contributions to its culture. The female form was highly revered and there was uh, part of their ancient custom was the belief that the region of Ephesus was first settled by female warriors from over the seas. The city was cashed up to the point that they could actually have the luxury of having its streets lit up at night by oil lamps. Other city budgets didn't have that, didn't have that space. All in all, the city of Ephesus was a pretty impressive specimen for its time, and anything anchored there could wield significant influence. Religiously, it was also quite diverse. It is believed between 10 and 20,000 Jews lived there, and they had a a, a degree of freedom to be their Jewish selves in that space, uh, despite the worldviews around them. There is also evidence, however, of tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and uh, it'll be good to remember that for later in this series. Beyond that, there are at least 50 deities that you can engage with. 
And it was common for a bunch of deities to be acknowledged together because they were all believed to have had various functions. You kind of went to a cocktail of gods to get what you needed done. In addition to and integrated with religion, we see that occult, superstition, and magic was also heavily pursued. There's evidence to suggest that it permeated all faiths, including Judaism. In Acts 19, we read about the seven sons of Sceva. You know, the son, they're sons of the, the, high, the Jewish high priest there. And, and we read that these guys are invoking names in order to hold demons at bay. And then it gets disastrously bad when they try to use the name of Jesus in that sort of way. It wasn't a form of exorcism. It was actually a form of magic in play here. It was actually darker than what we see on paper. But overshadowing all of that, is Artemis. She was known among many things as the goddess of the moon and the hunt. There was a temple, that's an artist's impression, based on what we have left at the moment, and this was built in 550 BC. It was actually a pretty strong, sturdy thing. Four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, and Artemis was held in the highest esteem in the city. Statues of her feature a necklace of all the signs of the zodiac around her neck, indicating that she is higher than fate itself. The Buddhist temple immediately came to mind when I considered that this week. She was loved deeply by the Ephesians, and we even see this in Acts when the city cries out, Great is the is Artemis of the Ephesians. She was a goddess to all the Greeks. But Ephesus and the region held her particularly close. It is said that her relationship was like a covenant bond and that she was revered as a powerful and sympathetic deity, having power over all the spiritual forces that people feared. What you'll see here is this neck piece around her neck in this one here. A lot of Older Christians said, oh, she's just a multi-breasted woman. That's actually not the case. These are bags of spells. This is actually something that they would wear back then. These are, they, this is more about magic than anything like that. She was a fertility symbol, but that is not the reason for, that, for us to, deduce, to duck, deduct that. But she had, if you feared something spiritual, she was the one you went to to try to have that sorted out. And twice a week, there was a city procession that came to and from the temple. Which is why I played that video beforehand. The city was woken up and everything had to stop in its tracks. Traffic had to be held at bay. All those things in order for the procession going to the temple just outside the city could be taking place and everybody in the town, no matter what you worshipped, knew that was going down. And also, her image, not Caesar's, was on their coins. She was bigger than the empire. Back in 26 AD, Emperor Tiberius was actually approached by the Ephesian people and said, listen, we've got this little temple to the emperor cult because every year Roman citizens have to pay homage to the, uh, to the emperor and declare him lord, which is why there was all that in Christian persecution in the first century. But they go, we need a bigger one. 
We want to build something, it's politically savvy, we want to do something big and actually have a proper temple to the emperor in our complex. Will you give us the funds? Will you allow us to build that in your name in this space? And he said, he did a bit of an assessment of Ephesus and came back and said no. He actually said, no, 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 you guys, he actually designated them occupied territory and said, we're not going to build another temple to me there. So even the emperor said, I can't compete with Artemis. In January, I was able to see a very strong parallel between the polytheism led by Artemis in Ephesus with the polytheism led by Buddha in Thailand. The way Buddhism was present in Thai society and the way it was politically and spiritually tied to the nation gives me at least a bit of a clue as to how things might have been in ancient Ephesus. If you've toured Southeast Asia, if you've been through Cambodia or Myanmar or, uh, you know, or Thailand and seen, or Sri Lanka and seen the large uh, Buddhist communities in play, you'll, you'll know what I mean by this. If you've been to India and seen the Hindu system, you'll probably also get an idea of that. But I also see parallels here in Mount Gambia too. Things in our lives can overshadow us. There are things in our lives that seek to have the prominent seat at our table where Jesus wants to sit. There are really strong things in our lives that try to take a, that stake a physically and surprisingly spiritual claim on us. I want to ask some serious questions here as a way of reflecting before we get into Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1 here today. What unordained or ungodly things are trying to overshadow our lives at this time? Or, let me put these words on screen here. What one major thing in your life competes with Jesus and holds you back from wholeheartedly following him. If you're a Superman, if Superman fan, watch your kryptonite. What is the one thing that always seems to derail your discipleship journey? When you count the cost of following Jesus the way the Gospels describe discipleship, what one thing gets in the way of that and says, I'll count the cost, but I won't pay that? Is it physical or spiritual? Or surprisingly both? Is it a worldview or a superstition? Is it a Western idol or an ideology? Is it a behavior or a habit? Is it something demanding time, effort, and action that looks eerily like devotion? Is there something seeking to coexist with Christ or even override him rather than be subject to him? Thai Christians live under the shadow of Buddhism. 
Ephesian Christians lived under the shadow of Artemis and its 60-foot high temple. What's casting that sort of shadow over us Western Christians here and now? For the sake of the recording not messing up on us, I'm going to pause here and uh, hopefully Simon, we have, the software's been flying up on us and the sermon stops recording. But I'll give us about 20 to 30 seconds just to reflect on that question. What one major thing in your life competes with Jesus in that sort of way? Why don't you reflect on that? Let's read Ephesians chapter 1 together, verses 1 to 14. It's on screen in three different languages to reflect our community. And let's go through this bit by bit. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul is in a really interesting place as he writes this. It's roughly 61 AD. The church is probably about 10 years old at this stage in Ephesus. And Paul is sitting in limbo right now under house arrest in Rome. He's got the first century version of an electronic tag around his wrist, a Roman guard. 
He's waiting for his day in the emperor's court after using his power of appeal as a Roman citizen. And he's even somewhat confident that he's going to get a good hearing. All that he can do at this time is entertain visitors and reflect and write. And his writing involves this particular letter. It's quite a reflection. What we see here is a series of key theological phrases intertwined with high praise. And I'm going to draw attention to some of them here and see what sort of response it draws out of us. The first is as early as verse 1, simply to the faithful in Christ. This is going to appear a heap of times in Paul's letter. As you read it, as you go through and read Ephesians in your own time, and I hope you do, do what I do, get a marker if you're willing, or use your app or whatever else, and highlight all the places where in Christ or some sort of variant of that shows up. It shows up heaps, in Christ. Made alive in Christ, chapter 2. Yeah, we've got this one here, to the faithful in Christ. It's, pre- it's quite prevalent. It's actually one of the key ways that Paul uses to describe a Christian. Definitely in this letter. It's consistent with what Jesus says in John chapter 15 also. I am the vine and you are the branch. Remain in me as I remain in you. Right from that, I'm challenged. You see, if we view life, the Christian life, as being around Christ or near Christ or anything less than in Christ, then we might be struggling to find ourselves in that place where we really need to be. If that's how you define your Christian faith and you're finding that it's not really clicking, it actually might be time to revisit the definition. I'm around Christ, not good enough. In Christ is where it's at. I'm near Christ, not good enough. In Christ is where it matters. Anywhere other than that puts you on the outside looking in. A Christian is in Christ. It's a close quarters, a deeply integrated with Jesus way that is being described throughout this letter. And in Christ, things are very different to the way the world around us believes things to be. When the world is in a panic, stockpiling toilet paper of all things, you'd think it was a gastro outbreak. When the world is seeing through its lens, rather distortedly, in Christ, we see things differently. There is blessing that we once didn't have that we now have. We're told here that we're given every spiritual blessing. That's important to note. The original reader would be encouraged that the God of heaven, once thought of as aloof or in need of manipulation by various deities, has in fact given its attention to them. 
God is now looking at them and extending blessing to them. Not without manipulation, not without them doing all the things or, or maneuvering things to suit their purposes, but simply because who God is, he extends blessing to them. That's a pretty special thing for them to grasp. The real power of God and not a counterfeit of the world is residing on them and in them. The Holy Spirit is empowering them to live boldly and differently. When things get tough, they'll have this depth of strength to hold on to. And the fact that this is a spiritual blessing means that there's no promise of riches or earthly power in all this. Paul is not writing checks here that Jesus isn't going to cash. The believer is not in this for personal gain. Instead, there is blessing that the world cannot attain. And no one can take this away from them either. When someone has everything but does not have Christ, it is this sense of blessing that they're on the lookout for. Because no matter what they have, if they don't have Christ, it will never be enough. And when a believer has nothing in this life, but yet remains in Christ... This blessing is actually enough to see them through. This spiritual blessing gets us through even if we think we have nothing else. That's the power of it. So in Christ, there is spiritual blessing and in Christ, there is special standing also. Look at these key words on the screen here that have been used to describe where we stand. In Christ, we are chosen adopted, redeemed, and forgiven. All these words indicate a change of status in us through Christ. In the weeks to come, we will see very clearly that this is through grace. So this change of status is nothing to do with what we bring to the table, but everything to do with what God initiates and Christ accomplishes. The words used here speak of deliberate actions from God. Being adopted means a deliberate choice to bring us into a position of sonship. If the world says I'm a nobody, I still am a son in the eyes of God. He adopts me. That's a choice. Being redeemed means the deliberate choice to purchase us from slavery. What sort of transaction took place there? Did he pay off the devil to buy us back? No, God owes nothing to him. No, there was a price to be paid though. It was the price of our sin that we actually were going to pay. But now no more. He actually bought us back from our own debt. Being chosen means being made a choice part of God's kingdom expression. And predestined. All this positioning and plans for choice and adoption and blessing was all being orchestrated before time as we know it. Paul writes that here. Chosen before time, before the foundation of the world. Before all the sin and the filthiness occurred, we were already predestined to become part of the family of God. Now, this has been fun to grapple with in 2,000 years of church history, this word. 
and uh, ruffled a lot of feathers. It started with you know, people like Augustine having a go, trying to describe some of it. Uh, John Calvin is best known for some of his work with this uh, particular idea. And over time, we've had these different understandings of what this means. There are those who believe that each individual was chosen before time. That the extreme view goes as far as to say that right now, there are people who walk around us who have already been earmarked for salvation and others already earmarked for judgment. This was all decided before time, and we use this verse as ammunition for that. The belief also holds an extreme view of the once saved, always saved doctrinal stance because if you are already elect before time, nothing changes that. There's been others, Arminius being, Arminius being one of them, a Dutch guy, who believe the complete opposite. But since everyone has free will, this cannot possibly be the case because it would take a degree of this free will away. So we've had this juggle of, yes, there is, a, there is this element of, of free will gifted to mankind, but also there is this sovereign plan of God in play also. There is scripture that speaks very clearly of an elect people and there are verses which speak of an all-inclusive gospel. That bloodshed at the cross was a once-for-all-humanity deal. And to be honest, I'm not convinced that this passage was intended by Paul to open up that can of worms. He wasn't going, gee, let's, let's divide the church for 2,000 years over a doctrinal stance that actually is peripheral to the core thing. What I do see is a constant narrative through all of Scripture of a people who were deliberately chosen to represent and express His way in His kingdom. This people was not initially divided by anything. At the time of creation, everyone was His. Just think about that. God's first created man you know, and, and was what we would safely call one of God's elect. It wasn't until sin entered that a delineation of being chosen or rejected came about. But there did come a time again where a group of people would be formed to be God's chosen people. This is the story of Israel. This chosen people were designed to be a blessing to the nations. There was always a plan of a set-apart people and elect people to shine the light of God. The foreigners who came into contact with this people were free to be grafted into their number, provided they embraced their God. Through an element of choice, they could be grafted in, even as foreigners, into God's chosen elect people. At least two Gentile women are grafted into the human lineage of Christ in this way. And there were people within that chosen nation who were rejected by God and judged because of their wickedness and rebellion. Just because King Ahab was a Hebrew by descent and therefore one of the elect people doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be partying with him in heaven. But the story of God's set-apart people now continues among the Gentile church, of which Ephesus is very much a part. When Paul initially went there, he spent three months at the Jewish synagogue. 
But then he spent another two years at the Hall of Tyrannus, down at the local university. The Jesus that this church knows is shown to us here as one who pre-existed creation. Jesus, before time, is co-collaborator with the Trinity and co-writing the redemption narrative before time. The deity of Christ is highlighted here, clearly. He's a clear participant in the Godhead. And Ephesus is being told here that their part of that narrative has been foretold. It's a statement of assurance to the church that, you know what, you might think you're walking alone. You might think that you're going, what have I got myself into? What, what am I doing in this small minority group living under the shadow of Artemis all around me and all these processions and all these other deities? There's 50 other names I could be worshipping right now. What's Jesus amongst all that? And Paul's going, you are part of something bigger than you know before time God made this people happen. You're part of God's narrative. Hold your head up high. It's not that each individual is predestined or not. That's an unproductive argument from silence. But it's that God's predestined narrative of a people separated to him is being continued in their midst and by extension ours. The Ephesian believers who came from a mainly pagan, idolatrous, sexualized, over-intellectualized, over-philosophized way of life were being made aware here that they are part of something much bigger. And if they needed proof or further assurance of any of this, they were to look to none other than the other part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is a very Trinitarian passage. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all playing a very active, clear role in this. We read in Acts that pretty much the first thing Paul does in Ephesus is to introduce some misinformed disciples to the power of the Spirit. They're the ones that he goes, hey, so have you got the Holy Spirit yet? They're going, the Holy who? Didn't know that. We got the baptism of John. We don't know anything about that stuff. And he goes, fine, let's talk about this. And bang, move of the Spirit. The Ephesians 7, speaking in tongues, prophesying, all that sort of stuff. We see that the Spirit was tangibly in play in Ephesus. And we, we hear about the massive burning of the now unneeded magic books and, and all that stuff, as well as the massive downturn in, in silversmith work, in, in, in actually purchasing trinkets and items of worship to Artemis and all these. We know that the Spirit was active in a charismatic way there. So they knew a bit about the Holy Spirit. But we also know in his earlier work in Galatians that receiving the Spirit was also one of Paul's pet terms for the experience of salvation itself. When you received the Spirit was his way of saying when you came to faith. So whether you speak in tongues or prophesy or not, the day you believe, the day you came to and put yourself in Christ is the day you received the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us that this is our down payment of that which is to come. 
It's our assurance of what is going to take place in full. It's Christ's pledge that what he has done in us is part of the predestined redemptive narrative of the Trinity. And it's proof that he's going to be back to finish what he started in us. The church in Ephesus is part of a huge predestined divine narrative. The Gentile church everywhere can include themselves in this narrative also. And as they came to this awareness, they would have had cause to hold their heads up high in God and carry themselves differently because of that. To not walk in the downtrodden minority way, but to hold their head up in who they are in Christ. And as they do that, hopefully, they would arrive at the same place in their hearts and minds that Paul clearly is as he writes this. Let me wind myself up here. Something I've only partially revealed so far through Facebook posting and that sort of stuff is the working title of our series, Ascend. Ascend is to move in a constant upward motion. Our telling of Ephesians in this series is going to look at three different forms of upward motion. They're going to make sense to us as we reveal them over the weeks to come. As we engage with the first two chapters, we see our first major motion in place. Look up. That's an upward motion. Look up. Paul is telling theological truths in these chapters. And he is telling it in such a way that theological reflection has birthed revelation. Things once merely mystery are now being revealed in profound ways. And the result, in Paul at least, is exuberant high praise. In the original Greek, verses 3 to 14 is just one sentence. Paul reflectively inhaled deeply and exhaled this incredibly deep sentence to a scribe. The sentence only ending because he paused for breath. The years of intimacy with the Lord, the years of familiarity with the Spirit, the years of theological reflection are all coming out in profound phrases that have captivated scholars ever since they were penned. To write off theology as something dry, boring, and the stuff the pastor has to endure in a classroom somewhere, that's not where it's at. We often do that. We kind of write it off. Yeah, that's your job, Cam. Theology is not my job. But Paul shows us here that as we reflect on the vastness of the God we know, it can, in fact, come out and inform our profound praise. So as as we engage with this first section of Ephesians, let's do so with a posture of looking up. Don't look at ourselves downcast. Don't think of ourselves as a minority group with all these other things overshadowing us all the time. 
We live in the shadow of secularism. We live in the shadow of all these other different things that are trying to challenge the claims of Christ. We are sometimes feeling like a minority group. We feel in our workplaces, in our schoolyards, in our settings of life, we often feel like the minority. We feel like the one voice in a million. We feel like the alone person at times. But Paul says, no, 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 this is who you are, look up. Change our posture. Because our status has changed, our position in life has changed because of Christ. We are in Christ. That is a totally different ballgame for us. So reflect actively with that, passionately with that, emphatically with that. Be swept up in the pre-written story of the Trinity. Of the Trinity. Be captured afresh by grace and what that means for our lives now. Lean in to our sense of adoption and chosenness. Rediscover again the price paid for our redemption. All theological words that actually change us and bring something really awesome out of us when we reflect on them. And look up to he who is higher than our figurative Artemises. That one thing that I asked about before in your reflection, Jesus is bigger than that. That one shadow in your life, Jesus brings light that actually goes, shadows exist because light can't turn corners. Year 8 science for you there. You know what's really funny? My science teacher gave us an overnight assignment. Come back tomorrow and tell me how a shadow, what, how a shadow works. Tell me Prove that light goes in a straight line by a shadow. And not one of us could work that out. But a shadow exists because light, as we know it, can't go around corners. The light of Christ permeates everything. It goes beyond that. It fills every void if we open it up to him. Whatever's casting a shadow... Turn to Jesus, who was bigger than that again. Let's pray.